Hold on and buckle up. You're about to ride into a place of theological sanity with Appalachian Anglican, Ecclesia Appalachia Missio Mundi. And welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl. And today we, today we will be discussing, it's a kingdom issue. It is a kingdom issue. Specifically, we want to talk about the Pentecostal charismatic hermeneutic that has become um, a distinct tradition, even though it's not quite old enough to be a tradition, and it has loose contours. But it is distinct enough that it is one of the influences within the Anglican world for hermeneutics. So as a distinct particular, particularly distinct kind of hermeneutic with loose contours affecting the Anglican communion, some would say for good, some would say for ill. I know that we have certain listeners who are probably yelling at their radios right now if they're listening to this via Bluetooth. It's ill! And others are yelling, it's good! Uh, and I thought, it's unknown enough that explaining it may, may be helpful because it's either going to reinforce if you think it's good or reinforce if you think it's bad. And hopefully for many, just instruct on what it is to begin with. And I think you're hitting the nail on the head there. A lot of times. Because what we're going to hit on here, it's more than just a, for example, a classical Pentecostal hermeneutic. Then you have your charismatic. And then which way of charismatic? So you have so many nuances here and so many smaller things within it where I would probably for some of those and be like, you're right. It's not a good thing. But for some of them, like, okay, hear us out. Hear what's happening here. And this is an important distinction because we can. We can hear the term and associate it with something that the originators of the term and most of the people using the term don't mean by it. That, that's, that's an important part of things. I'll give you an example. Uh, our regular listeners know that I came to the Lord through a traditional Pentecostal ministry. It was a local church that was traditional Pentecostal. Now, what does that mean? Well, you've got a couple benchmark points on traditional Pentecostalism. Uh, they... Traditional Pentecostalism is a child of the Reformation, all right? So that takes it away from the Roman and the, uh, the Orthodox bodies and brings it into the Reformed bodies. Okay, that's step one. You follow, Josh? I'm tracking. Okay. And as a Reformed, as part of the Reformation, it comes from largely the Church of England, the Anglican Communion. Then through the Wesleys and the First Great Awakening, it becomes more circumscribed into Methodism and then comes out of Methodism, specifically the kind of Methodism that was splitting and fracturing in America in the 1800s over the doctrine of entire sanctification as a second definite work of grace. Now, those may be new terms to a lot of people, but I'm, I'm pointing that out because traditional Pentecostalism is distinct from, say, the charismatic renewal that began roughly with Dennis Bennett in 1959. And Bennett was an Anglo- he was an Episcopal priest. He was an Anglican priest out in California, and we'll talk about him more in depth in a moment. But the traditional Pentecostal uh, movement, I'll, I'll use that phrase because if you go back and you read the founders and the, the leaders of the early decade and a half or so, they did not, I mean, they were anti-denomination. They did not want a denomination. They did not want a new church structure. They didn't want anything like that at all. They believed that they were experiencing a great renewal and outpouring of the Holy Spirit for some very key specific points. One, they were going to be empowered to be better missionaries. They were going to be more effective at preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. Two that the presence of the Holy Spirit abiding within the members of the church through his various gifts and charisms would raise the bar of holiness. So the church would become generally more holy than she was in their day. And 
Um, and then thirdly, because of those things, they believed that this outpouring of the Spirit was a fulfillment of the latter rain promised in the Old, in the Old Testament. And, and that the latter rain was uh, the feast, the principal feasts around tabernacles, was one of the feasts of the, that had not been fulfilled in their theology in the New Testament. Now, the latter rain movement is an entirely distinct event from traditional Pentecostalism, but it's connected. And the latter rain starts in the 1940s. We could talk about that another time. And that comes out of Saskatchewan, out of Canada. But the traditional Pentecostal movement was largely Methodists or Wesleyan leaders and theologians and a smattering of Reformed theologians kind of sprinkled in here and there. And so what you end up with in the early traditional Pentecostal movement is a Reformed theology when it comes to Scripture. So Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. The five solas. Yeah, yeah. Within a modernism philosophy. And here's what I mean by that. A modernism, a modernism hermeneutic is, is essentially how you prove something. And so they would go to proof texts of Scripture to prove their, their doctrine. And then they would ask empirical questions of the text that the text wasn't trying to address. For example, this is really what separates a traditional Pentecostal and a charismatic theologically. Okay. The second definite work of grace. What is that? Okay. From the Anglican perspective, sharing in the Catholic theology, baptism is a sacrament. It's the first work of grace, so to speak. Okay. Now I realize there's ways to parse this out, but I gotta I gotta find some way to articulate this for us. Okay. So you guys track with me here. Don't don't check out on me, okay, Josh? I'm locked in. I'm uh, ready to go. All right. And baptism. Baptism is a dual rite of initiation into the church. So you get baptized and then you, you receive the, you know, baptism. You're baptized and then you're confirmed. You're confirmed. And so baptism and confirmation is a dual rite of initiation into the church. Wesley was an Anglican priest. One of Wesley's principal theological minds was a guy by the name of John Fletcher. Fletcher is the one who took the text of uh, the New Testament and the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit and began to associate it in a more specific way. He didn't do this unilaterally, but in a more specific way to the experience of the believer in confirmation, equating that experience with a personal Pentecost. And remember, Wesley is a high churchman, and the Methodists of his generation were all high churchmen even if they become lower than they were. Does that make sense? They'd all be high churchmen compared to their contemporaries today. That, that's what I'm, what I'm saying there. Yeah, okay. Fletcher, Wesley was actually going to give Fletcher, he was going to hand the movement over to Fletcher, the Methodist movement, but Fletcher died before, before that could happen. But Fletcher's the one who starts to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second event, but he related it or connected it to sanctification. Wesley's doctrine of Christian perfection, of sanctification by which he did not define it in a reformed sense where sin was the nature and all your activities being infected by it. Wesley understood sin to be the conscious breaking of the commandments. And so when Wesley talks about Christian perfectionism, uh, the, the teleotes, the telos, which is translated as maturity in most of your English Bibles now, Wesley was talking about divine love so filling the heart that you didn't do any conscious sinning. You obeyed everything that you knew you should obey. Now that sounds like basic gospel because it is, but you've got to put him back in his context and the great evangelical awakening and what was going on, that there were many, 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 many people making a profession of faith with no tangible obedience. And so the entire first great evangelical awakening in England is predominantly to a Christianized people who have made some profession of faith or been raised up in it, but never owned the faith. They never owned it themselves. It's to that group of people then that there's this preaching by Wesley and many others for the second definite work of grace that was lifted from, so here's your personal conversion, and then here's your second experience of grace. That dual 
work was lifted from baptism and confirmation. That's where it came from. And the generation after Wesley separated the visible sign of the sacrament and the invisible race of the grace. The, 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 the real power of the Spirit causing the thing to be efficacious. Now, Wesley makes a distinction between them academically, but it's the generation after him that divides them. So you can begin to receive the grace without the tangible thing that's visible. So you can be saved without baptism. You could be confirmed into the church, if you will, although the language is already gone at that point. But you could be confirmed into the church by an interior witness of the Spirit that sanctified you and empowered you for service. That's very brief. I got to keep it brief because we, or we're not going get, to get any further. When you come into the 1800s and you come into the United States and you come into the circuit riders going out as principally pioneer preachers, you know, go west, young man, go west. Uh, Francis Asbury, who in 1771, I believe at the age of 26 or 27, Wesley sent as a circuit rider to the colonies. Wesley becomes the first uh, bishop of the Methodist Episcopal Church in Baltimore in 1781, thereabouts. Asbury called camp meetings the battle axe of the Lord because of the kind of revivalistic nature of what was going on. Okay. Well, you, you get this development because of those events and some other things, but through the course of the 1800s, Methodism and Wesleyanism starts to split into other denominational organizations. I mean, just, you know, take a mirror and drop it on the floor and watch it shatter. That's what it does throughout the United States. But they retain that basic ordo salutis structure of the first act of grace is when you you're get saved, and the second one is one about sanctification. And they still called it entire sanctification, but it starts to tweak a little bit. And now it becomes an entire sanctification that is, are you ready, Josh? Shoot. The eradication of the sinful nature. Not just that you have power over it, because First John's pretty clear that he who continues to sin is still of the devil. Uh, you know, the one who's born of God doesn't continue sinning. That's what John says. They took it and they went much further. It's almost like a, an overly realized eschatology. So that the sin nature, the, the ability to sin, if you will, has been so thoroughly burned out of you. And, I'm, and this is, I'm collapsing a lot of movements and individuals here, okay? I, I recognize that there's some nuance here. But they basically said that you get, you're so thoroughly sanctified that you don't sin again. Well, they start to realize that that's not the case because people were making professions of this entire sanctification, but then they would go out and start sinning again. So how does that work? Or they would build entire communities of people like this and then there'd be a bunch of crazy stuff going on. Yeah, they'd go back to sinning again. Yes. So this is where the modernism thing kicks in. Charles Parham in uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s, started a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas. And the only thing that they studied was the Bible. And Parham was a Methodist. He, well, he was a, a kind of Methodist. Staunch holiness uh, preacher. Also an, an annihilationist. And remember that spiritualism was very big at the time, especially in the United States. Okay, You ever see the movie Tombstone? Western movie with, with Wyatt Earp. Okay, I literally was watching that the other day. I didn't finish watching it, though. In, in the movie, for those who have seen it, one of the Earp brothers is talking about spiritualism at the beginning of the film. And they, the, the, the writer, whoever wrote that, captures that truly. I don't know if the guy was actually into spiritualism, but that was a big thing in that part of the United States. Well, actually, Western civilization. Uh, the United States and parts of Europe, big into spiritualism and necromancy, essentially, in the late 1800s into the early 1900s, because that's when the Ouija board starts to become a thing. But the entire sanctification, Charles Parham's Bible School in Topeka, Kansas, this was the question he put to the 40-some-odd students before he went to preach for John Alexander Dowie at Zion, Illinois. Dowie's a whole other character in the healing miracles and things. Uh, medicine was against the law in Zion because there were so many people who would get healed from all kinds of stuff you can imagine. I mean, think about that. We can ridicule, so, oh, that's ridiculous. Well, get in your DeLorean, go back in time, and watch how many people were being healed in the city, and you'll see why they passed that kind of law. Well, Dowie lost it. He went crazy. Have we not read the book of Judges? I just feel like we haven't read the book of Judges. Chapter's uh, coming to mind for me, so. I mean, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, Parham goes to preach for Dowie, 
he comes back. This is Christmas, right around the year 1900, and uh, the turn of the year. And he asks the 40-some-odd students, as they've studied the Bible, is there, a, is there an initial physical sign of being baptized in the Holy Spirit? So you see the, con- the conflation of ideas, right? So here's this invisible graces, this uh, uh, John Fletcher's ideology, entire sanctification. All this stuff's kind of coming to a head in the way that they're even phrasing their concepts. And Parham says, is there an, is there an initial physical sign? And the, and the Bible students, the college students, who had studied individually came back with a singular answer, and the answer was yes. It was speaking in other tongues. There are five distinct, account, distinct accounts in the book of Acts where we see that the disciples are baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit either right before or right after their conversion, which would include water baptism. There's five of them. Of the five, three have specific details. The day of Pentecost and uh, Cornelius. Cornelius' house. And what's the, what's the third one? Ephesus and Acts 19. Okay. In each case, we read that they believed on the Lord, that they, they're saved, right? And then when Luke gives us a description of the phenomena that associates them being filled with the Holy Spirit, only one phenomena is consistent in all three cases. And that's glossolalia, speaking in other tongues. And so um, even though they all saw this in the scripture as they were studying it, this, it split the school. So a number of them leave, but a couple stay on. And one lady named Agnes Osmond, she requests that Parham and the other students lay hands upon her and pray for her to have this experience. And they do so. And the record says that the spirit of the Lord came upon her and she spoke in Chinese for three days. That is the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. Ni hao. Which is, okay, which is a synthesis of Methodism, Reformational doctrine, pioneer revivalism, and modernism. So all of it kind of converges and coalesces at the same time. And the people, because they're pursuing God and they're seeking the Lord and they're striving to live holy lives and they're doing good uh, justice works. I mean, they're caring for the poor because they did it at the Bible school there in Topeka too. Starts to spread. And so William Seymour, who happened to be a, he was African-American man who was the son of former slaves. Because of the, the, the Jim Crow laws, he couldn't sit in the classroom that Parham was teaching. So he'd sit right outside the door and Parham would go out and he would counsel him and talk with him and Basically, you know, Seymour becomes convinced of this doctrine. And Seymour goes down into Texas and then eventually makes his way out to Los Angeles. And while he's out in Los Angeles, he's invited to preach. That's why he's there. So he preaches that first, uh, the Sunday morning service at the particular church. I forget the name of it. But when they discover that he is a premillennialist, that Jesus will come back before the millennium, we did a whole series of episodes on those. Uh, they lock the church door on him, so he can't come back and preach that night. He gets, he gets shut out of the church. He gets taken in by one of the guys in the neighborhood, in, in the church, who lets him live with him. And Seymour spends the next seven, eight, nine hours a day in prayer for so many weeks. And he has not had this experience of speaking in other tongues. Well, 412 Bonnie Bray Street in April, right around 1906, he's in this house on Bonnie Bray Street. And as he's sharing about this uh, from Acts chapter 2, the records indicate that the, there was a mighty manifestation of the Holy Spirit, and the lady playing the piano fell out onto the floor. And then there was such a, a, an outburst of phenomena over the next several days that the porch and the floorboards in the, in the living room began to give way, like they were, they were cracking and creaking under the groaning of the, of the, the weight. So that's when they go down to Azusa Street, A to Z, USA, to a, to a horse stables, and they convert the horse stables into a mission. And then for about three years, they have 24-7 worship and prayer. All of it is unscripted. Like they didn't plan, it wasn't worship services, it wasn't, there was no like prayer book liturgies, none of that was going on. It was, it was a 24-7 for about three years, and the multiple records the multiple records, so it's not just one eyewitness, but newspaper clippings, stories, accounts, journals of blue smoke, they called it the Shekinah, would come into the room, and as it began to fill the room, people would start to get healed. The blind would start to see, 
the accounts of people speaking in not just glossolalia and, and like a prayer language, but in full-on languages like the book of Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost was going on. People would begin to preach in languages they didn't know. And because it's Los Angeles, it's a giant uh, city at, even then, and it's very international. The international peoples who were there would be hearing the gospel in their own language. And so we have a, accounts of uh, Jewish men who did not believe. They, they weren't Christians, but they came to see this. They, one account, there's a, a teenage girl who began to preach the gospel in Hebrew, and she didn't know it was Hebrew. He hears the gospel in Hebrew, converts, and turns to the Lord. So there's all kinds of reports. That, if Topeka, was basic, Topeka, Kansas, with Parham, was basically the beginning of a Pentecostal, traditional Pentecostalism in the United States. Azusa Street was Pentecostalism for the globe. And when you do a comparative study with world Christian movements at the time, that's, while that's happening in Azusa Street, the Welsh revival is going on with Evan Roberts. That's got its, a whole nother set of phenomena associated with it. While that's going on, Korea, South Korea, is having a very distinct particular outpouring of grace that no one was expecting. So we could go and talk about a lot of those other movements as well. But because we want to talk about this from this, uh, you know, within the Catholic tradition and the Anglican side of things, the traditional Pentecostal, and there aren't many left, by the way, the denominations that end up being created roughly from 1914 and 16 onward, and there's many, the denominations may exist, but the traditional Pentecostal emphasis on holiness, personal holiness, holiness in my clothing, my speech, my dress, all the, the, those emphases. For example, it was in the, the mid-90s that I came to the Lord in that church. When I went to youth camp as a teenager, we couldn't wear shorts because shorts were sinful, and the girls were in dresses. And it was not a, quote, quote, holiness denomination. It was just a traditional Pentecostal denomination. When I went to Bible college in the late 90s, I couldn't wear shorts on campus unless I was going to the gym or leaving campus. No flip-flops, no T-shirts, your, your clothing. I mean, you know, think of like a Baptist school at the time because they were pretty comparable. Couldn't go to the movie theater. Lots of holiness rules. Okay? And, and as much as people want to laugh and kind of ridicule at that, look at what, look at what we have replaced it with. Open debauchery and licentiousness and pretending that we're, we're saved and justified by faith because, you know, everything else is religion. Ravenhill said 50 years ago, we're more afraid of holiness than we are of worldliness. And if that was the case then, and the, you know, then how much now? But all that to say, traditional Pentecostalism did not create its own hermeneutic. It was the synthesis of the various hermeneutics from the different traditions and denominations that those people came out of. I'm sure a lot of the people from those traditions would argue that they created their own hermeneutic. I'm pretty, or well, try to. The, they, the people, the, like the, the denominations they came out of would have, but mo that's usually not what they talked about. What they called them were, were enthusiasts, fanatics. Uh, you're taking your religion too seriously. You're, 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 you're disorderly. Uh, you're too exuberant. This kind of stuff. It, yes. And that's, yeah. I mean, those, those accusations are true. We have, we, as, as there are reports of healings and miracles and phenomenal signs and wonders, the, 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 the records of history are replete with other things that are utterly scandalous. I mean, atrociously scandalous. And then other things that have no wisdom in them whatsoever. Missionaries are the one-way ticket. People who believed that when they spoke in a particular tongue, that tongue was the dialect of an unreached people group on the earth. And so they would buy a ticket and then their coffin, and they would load up the coffin with their stuff. Sometimes they didn't buy a coffin. Some of them did. And they got that from the Moravian missionaries. They would go overseas to wherever they thought that language was, and most of them died. They didn't, they didn't even plant the churches there. They, it wasn't the Holy Spirit. It was, it, was foul. It, was, it was wrong. At the same time, there are a few accounts where that is, in fact, what did take place. Uh, I believe there was two guys, uh, two Dutch brothers, who were speaking a particular dialect of a tribe in Brazil, if I remember the details correctly. It's been a long time since I read it. So when they began to, to speak in this tongue from this Brazilian tribe, now how they knew what that was, I don't know. But they went down to Brazil and they started this whole series of churches, and there was a massive 
outpouring of the spirit for the kingdom with conversions and all kinds of stuff. So you, you get all, you get, you get A.W. Tozer, who is a mystic. He's evangelical. He led the, the CMA, Christian Missionary Alliance. Tozer said that he could not endorse the Pentecostal movement. But there was something of God in it somewhere. That's a big deal when a guy like Tozer says that because almost every Pentecostal I know loves Tozer. But it speaks to just how the bad press didn't help. And the bad press wasn't just bad press. It was true press. I mean, what is the report in Corinth about the church in Corinth before Paul sends these letters? Oh, it's accurate. Yeah, it's it's, accurate. It's dead on. It's incredibly accurate. While the Spirit of the Lord is still at work. So, let's let's shift to the charismatic side for a moment. I do think the the big the big highlights from that is you talk about modernism, or really as we see it presented with uh, fundamentalism. That, right, that, 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 that was it, a big deal. So, if you to, to truly understand, and this is going to really make sense, why I'm I'm bringing this up later as we start looking at some of the other. Um, charismatic movements is because that is the undertowing hermeneutic with a tweak. Yes. Th- that, that would be, if you said, Hey, tell me in two sentences, I would say the fundamental, a fundamentalist and uh, hermeneutic with a, a twist. And if we had more time, I'd tell you why, like you did. Yeah. That, yeah. That's the biggest thing to, to see there. And f- they, they, the early Pentecostals opted for fundamentalism because fundamentalism was the response in the American church against the liberalism that began in continental Europe as a, re- as a result of higher text criticism that undermined the authority of scripture. So if they had to pick between being a liberal or being a fundamentalist, then right. they're going to pick the furthest away of being a liberal as they can. Right. I'm going to pick the thing that says that the word of God is true. There's that reformed yes. emphasis and whatever it says is right. And so their response to the point you brought up, Josh, to the people who were saying they were creating the new hermeneutic, new hermeneutic, a new hermeneutic was, no, we're not. We're just experiencing what the scripture describes and what the scripture promises. That's, that's how they perceived themselves. Now, you, people could disagree that that's what was going on, but you can't disagree with what their intent and their self-understanding was and is for that matter. Okay. Um, so let's go into, and we, there's a whole lot of stuff that happens between 1906 and 1959. We don't have time to get into it. Well, one of the big things that happens is Elvis. I didn't think you were going to go there. I thought you were going to go towards <laughs> the massive evangelistic crusades. Yeah, like, what is it? Oh, opposite of Billy Graham, there was like Billy Sunday or something like that. Well, he wasn't, yeah. Well, you got a whole series of, of itinerant preachers and tent preachers and, 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 uh, false people and charlatans along with some true ones. I mean, you, you got a whole, whole series of things that are taking place there. And that's not just Pentecostal. I mean, that's Baptist, that's Methodist. That's a lot of the, the frontier uh, Christian groups are, are involved in that. And uh, we, we don't have time to go into all the, the history here. Um, 1959 is when Dennis Bennett, who is, as I mentioned, an Anglican priest who has an experience with the spirit after some time of really wrestling through what's in the prayer book, and recognizing that in, as far as a prayer book goes, the words were there, but the experience that the words described were not his experience. And so after he has his own experience with the Spirit, then there's a the, you know, pretty, pretty significant move of graces and operations of powers of the Spirit, you know, gifts, healings, exorcisms. Um, that starts to move through the Anglican Church globally pretty quick. Now, one of the differences, and we could go into more charismatic history too and talk about the third wave and NAR. Maybe we'll do that, but uh, that gets into an independent thing. But what, what the charismatic movement essentially is, is when the experience of the Pentecostals becomes the experience of the mainline denominations, which would include the Roman Catholics, because the Roman Catholic charismatic renewal begins in the 1960s as well. And, um, is, and, and Dennis Bennett is like, he's around a lot of that. You got a bunch of other leaders who are part of that as well. And, and the traditional Pentecostals basically threw dust on the charismatic movement because they were saying, you guys are too worldly. You're not living a holy life. You're not really committed to the teaching of scripture. You're, you're too lackadaisical in your disciplines, et cetera, et cetera. 
And while some of that's true, especially in the holiness standards, there's a bigger undercurrent. And the bigger undercurrent is that if the Pentecostalism in that first generation was steeped in modernism and fundamentalism, the charismatic movement is coming in the early stages of postmodernism and a, and a cultural progressivism. And so when you look at, the chari- look at the charismatic movement in the Anglican world, it's not an accident that the novelties and innovations of doctrine and practice run concurrent with an awareness of the Spirit's immediate activity and work. And, the, and the, the men, as learned as they are, who don't know that distinction will confuse the two. And they're not the same. They're not the same. They're distinct, and you got to keep them distinct. There can be some parallel between them, but they're not principally the same. Uh, you bring up a really good point. You, you start looking, especially at the Pentecostal charismatic movements. The first like traditional Pentecostal movement was not aiming to make a denomination. Right. That was not at school. The same with uh, how the charismatic movement hits the mainline denominations. They're obviously not aiming to make a new denomination. They, they already have one. Right. And so it's how that permeates through and how that works its way out. And I, like you said, not sure exactly how we get to, you know, third wave, but that is exactly what happens is they go the opposite. Right. And they say, oh, we're doing a new thing. Well, so the, I mean, the excesses of the Pentecostal movement are the same excesses, excesses of the early Methodist movement. But we have records from Wesley's journals and the other Methodists of his generation where they were chasing demons up trees. I mean, the, 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 the bizarre excessives get, get way out of whack. And Wesley, being the high churchman, praising the liturgy and the prayer book, was insistent that his clergy not celebrate, I say clergy, that his preachers not celebrate any of the sacraments. They had to go to the priests. So Wesley was very keen to hold both form and faith together. Form and function, he held them together. It's the generations after him that split them up. Now they did it because of some of the things that he did, but they, they split that. When you get to the, this time of uh, the Pentecostals, there's already no one visible church. Now, I know Rome would argue with that with us, but there's no singular body that you would go to and say, well, this is the church that all of the Christians in the area go to. There's already multiple denominations and structures that are in place. And the Pentecostals don't want to make another one. They want to reunite and they want to enliven and, and quicken the ones that exist. It's a John 17 movement in a very real way, but it's predicated upon an experience in the spirit. And because they, own, because they were fundamentalist in their approach, they believed that you would not have that experience of the spirit if you weren't already in Christ. So they weren't advocating for just general spiritualism as it was going on around them. They were actually the counter response. They were the reaction to the spiritualism of the culture. In the 1960s, the Episcopal Bishop James Pike was so grieved over his son's death, he sought a medium, a a necromancer, to try to commune with his dead son. How does that happen, right? And and I can't, I mean, I'm not going to go into psychoanalysis there, but I use it as an example to say, if you don't believe in the communion of the saints, if you don't have a robust doctrine and theology that's historically and classically Christian, whether you're experiencing that in a supernatural or a, a, an enlivened way, you doctrinally can cope with things so that you don't turn to idolatry. And that's what you end up with in the charismatic movement. In the charismatic movement, the excesses of the early Methodists, the excesses of the early Pentecostals become the excesses of the charismatics, except they do a better job on the whole of retaining their structure and their form and their doctrine with some exceptions here and there until eventually we have where we have been now, I want to say for a couple decades, where the charismatic movement, while it is still operating in charisms, 1 Corinthians, it's also taking authorities and privileges to itself to unilaterally change what has been believed everywhere, always, and by all, because they have the spirit. And I can tell you, you know, to let my hair down with what little bit I have left. Oh, it looks good. Thank you. Thank you. I just come to the side here. I see, the, I see the mullet shake. The, I don't think it's a mullet. I think it's a shine from the boldness on top. I um, mean, somebody just drove by one of those uh, Kawasaki's. Thank you. Thank you. 
Anyway, you, you love that commercial way too much. I do. You did. You, you did. You did. You did. Um, when I was reading, well, let me back up. When I was in Bible college, I had a, one of my professors. I took uh, when I take five theology classes with him. I don't know. I took a lot of classes with him. Brilliant guy. He said in one of the classes that we needed a Pentecostal hermeneutic. I was like, okay. Well, I'm going to do that. I'm going to try to figure that out. And so that's when I started scouring through the library. And we had the largest Pentecostal library of any Pentecostal school in the United States. It was huge. Central Barber College. It's gone now. The books are all gone. They're all somewhere else. But that library was magnificent. And uh, that's when I was still pronouncing things incorrectly on like a regular basis. Like I, I remember reading something that, that was uh, citing the Didache, but I didn't know how to read that. So I walked up to the guy in the library and I said, I'm looking for something. I think it's called the Didache. He said, what? I said, I don't know how you say it, but it looks like did ache. And I don't know if it's Didache, he goes, Didache. I'm like, I, I don't. Okay. But that's the book I got to find. And so I went, I mean, all that to say, I didn't, I didn't even know how to pronounce most of the words. And I'm scouring through everything I can find throughout the entirety of the library. That's when I started reading Wesley, Edwards, Whitfield, Knox, a little bit of Calvin, uh, some Luther, and then the fathers of the church um, trying to piece together some sort of hermeneutic that gave justification to the movement that I was in. Now, you can say that's a waste of time or not. But that's what I was doing outside of my regular studies. Now, I should have gone out and done some walking, you know, but um, <laughs> that's what I did. And I remember how I, when I started to piece all that material together and tried to synthesize it, that when I became aware of Anglicanism, because it was in those studies that I learned phrases like high church and Anglican. And when I realized that's what Wesley and Whitfield were, I thought, well, what are they? And so I looked them up and, and, when the, whatever I was reading said that they were Episcopal, like they would be the, the equivalent of the Episcopal Church in the United States, I thought, well, no, thank you. I, I don't want anything to do with that because everything that I had been reading about that in the news at the time, if anybody is unfamiliar with the church wars the Episcopal Church was experiencing in the late 90s, early 2000s, I'm not even going to recommend you look it up because you're not going to be, you're not gonna really be encouraged at all. And so I thought, well, no, no, th no thank you. So I just kind of set that to the side. And then just start to continue to study some more. Eight, nine years later, 10 years later, 12 years later. That's when I discovered that what I had pieced together through my own independent study was very much the theology and methodology of Richard Hooker. I thought, oh, well, that's, that's Anglicanism. That's reformed, lowercase r, reformed Catholic. That's what it is. It's the church, the one church under the authority of scripture, right? And, and I could go into some more details on that. And then I met charismatic Anglicans, guys who were committed to the history and faith and doctrine of the church and believed that when they prayed, God would answer their prayers. And so I had been in Pentecostal, that's where I came to the Lord, Pentecostal church. And I spent a lot of time in a various charismatic movements, uh, ministries. So some that were independent, some that were connected to denominations. And you want to talk about the number of services I've been in where people were prophesying or people were falling or people were shaking or demons were talking through people. And it's not all mental disorder. Some of it was. Some of it wasn't. I've seen all kinds of stuff. Well, and when I come into this charismatic Anglican parish, they're operating on a regular basis in more of the particular gifts and ministries of the Spirit than most of the Pentecostals I knew after they'd spend three to 10 days prayer in prayer and fasting. So it was, it was a, it was a paradigm shift for me. And I thought, wow, okay. So this, this historic kind of church is still around, except for, for these guys, they had not adopted a progressive hermeneutic. They retained the Catholic hermeneutic that had been once for all delivered to the church. And so that was, that was an incredibly insightful thing for me. A couple years later, several years later, I was reading from the ACNA, the College of Bishops Task Force on Holy Orders, and I read the Catholic, the Reformed or Evangelical, and the Charismatic Explanation for the Ordination of Women. And as I was reading that, and I read through the Charismatic understanding, I thought, well, that's, that is not 
a Pentecostal hermeneutic. That's not what that is. That, that is a hermeneutic that's coming from a progressivism that has a charismatic experience with it. And here's what I mean. That particular articulation, which is representative of the charismatic movement that starts coming, that starts growing at the same time as these other movements. And it's a continuation of other preceding, it's got other antecedents that we can't get into. It looks at history as progressively becoming better because human nature becomes better via education. And because it's been Christianized, so the longer the church exists on earth, the better the church will become, both in her doctrine and in her practices. And we won't even call her a her because that's a gender stereotype that needs to be deconstructed. So the church becomes an, an it that is better because humanity becomes better because we progressively become better. That's one undercurrent. And the second is those developments happen in epochs. And the epochs are particular revivals, particular movements, renewals, awakenings. And in each one of those awakenings and renewals is when the Holy Spirit is bringing up and out of the church something brand new that needs to be done for the church. That entire paradigm is contrary to Jude, the letter of Jude, where Jude is clear that the faith has been delivered once for all. So in the same way that Christ died one time and rose one time, once for all, not once and for all, but once for all, so the apostolic deposit of faith has been given once for all. There are no new additions to it. And when we take our Reformed Catholicism, and this was the characteristic of even early Pentecostals, and we understand that the locus for that is in the canonical 66 books of Scripture, and see the benefit of the apocryphal texts, etc., and we understand that as that deposit of faith, and that the early centuries of Christian history, let's even go to the year 1000 before the schism happens, that itself is the articulation of what it means, that is the antithesis of progressivism. It doesn't work. As we chew on this stuff, and I realize that may be a lot of information, and I know there's nuance. So I, I, our listeners, there is nuance. Um, let me pause there because there's a lot of, man, there's so much we could kick around there. There, there is a lot that we could, um, could kick around there. But I, the, the one point I, I, I will say, and I'll look at, because your, your experience in the traditional Pentecostal community was different than mine because I experienced it 10 years later. Yes. It changed and, a lot. And so we see a lot of this, this hermeneutic being distorted in, in a way. And it is not like it, oh, it only happened within those mainline denominations. No, it, it happened everywhere. Right. And now there's still pockets regionally um, where we see that truly traditional Pentecostal hermeneutic being lived out. We do see it, right. but for the most part, it's gone, and it has been replaced with this more progressive, non-denom, big evangelical, Jesus yes. is in heaven to make you happy kind you, of stuff. To the point where you don't even want to put your denomination that is associated with being Pentecostal anymore on your sign or did in you, your name. Did you know that there's a giant mega church down in Houston? I won't name it, but it's ginormous. The pastor who's there now... His father was part of, uh, I think he was actually in the word, the word of Faith movement. And the Word of Faith movement is a particular kind of traditional Pentecostal that became charismatic part of the third wave. So there's a whole lot of subsidiary movements there. And uh, so he passes away. And it was a big church then. It wasn't a mega church, as mega churches are counted in the 80s and 90s, but it was a big church. So his son takes it. It becomes huge. Like huge doesn't, I mean, it's a giant church. I want to say 2005 or six, they stopped displaying the cross in that mega church. Not because they didn't believe it, but because it was offensive. They didn't want to offend outsiders who didn't know anything about Christianity when they came in by having a cross hanging up, right? That's pretty well known, pretty well known fact. And the irony, it's tragic, but the irony that that is the kind of approach the missiology, if you will, of being relevant and contemporary doesn't advance the gospel. It kind of goes the other way. 
So that even if you go into some of those other movements, like I just mentioned, like Word of Faith, and I've got some serious problems with that. I mean, some of that's full-on heresy. Uh, but you can, you can look at some of that and you can see that those guys still would preach about the cross. Now, they would use it as a means of gain, but they'd still preach about it, as opposed to now it doesn't come up. And that goes into the stuff we were talking about last week. How much intent can we, how much of our different intent can we use to undermine the gospel in such a way that it's not the gospel anymore? We don't have time for that, but. There are some, some good things that happened. Uh, the intensity of mission. That, like, that is a good thing. It, you see it um, in a lot of groups of people who are more on that charismatic and not charismatic. You see it in the charismatic, not charismatic, but you really see it. That's one of the indications or one of the changes you'll see is an intense fervor for that. Yeah. Look at that in the Anglican communion. So the church in Uganda is, it's still experiencing in some ways the East African revival, which was predominantly lay preachers. And they were, I mean, in the church of Uganda, you can't drink. That's a Pentecostal influence right there. Traditional Pentecostal influence. Belief in the gifts and the power of the spirit. I mean, uh, they're just, it, it's still growing so fast. The church in Nigeria, high church and ceremony, again, an experience of revivalistic preaching and a firm expectation of God's power to be active. The, Korea, the Anglican church in Korea, very high, high church, high Catholic, very charismatic in experience. It are, it's these enclaves in the United States that understand the charismatic nature of the church to be something relegated to history or something that's so disruptive that they, don't, they won't get involved in it. And you're missing what's going on. One of the best um, effects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit when he's actively working in our lives in a way that we're conscious of is that he teaches us to rely on him. And that he does stuff that we can't do. Uh, I've known guys who are like, well, I'm a, I'm a cessationist or I'm a, some kind of cessationist, meaning they don't believe in the gifts that are present. But then they'll talk to me about how they prayed for such and so with oil and they got healed. They'll talk about how they cast a demon out of somebody. They'll talk about, they start going into stuff that's charismatic. And I'm like, you, you don't, I don't think you understand what you're talking about. You are describing a spirit-empowered life. Now, you may not go to a Christian rock concert and speak in tongues like the thing that you're condemning, but you're operating in the gifts and the power of the Spirit. It's a big tent. The gift of the Holy Spirit through these particular traditions has been a quickening and enlivening experience. It doesn't mean that you become so open-minded that your brain falls out, but it means that you begin to experience the things that are described for us in the pages of Scripture and that tradition weeds for us. Why would we not, if the Holy Spirit would do it for us, why would we not want mystical prayer lives, a prayer life? Why would we not want a conscious awareness with the communion of the saints? Why would we refuse anything like that he wants to give us? Yes, refuse the excesses. And if you don't know what those are, or you're so convinced as to what you, you think they are, ask the Lord to, to give you real insight on it and trust him to do it. Doesn't mean you're going to go out and buy the new Hillsong or the new Jesus culture, or the new Bethel record, and turn it on. I'm not, I actually probably would recommend you not. Well, there's there, that's part of my point. Like, we can so associate something with something else that we can't receive the good thing that the Lord wants to give us. And for all of the problems that there are in the Pentecostal and charismatic movements, what's your alternative? Are you going to tell me you're going to look at the Roman Catholic Church? And I'm not denigrating Rome, but come on, let's look at the news headlines right now. Are you going to look at the Anglican communion? Come on, we got some shady stuff going on, raving the nave. I mean, there's some things that have been going on for a long time that are bad. So you can't look at the straw man representation and use that as the thing that you condemn. You can't do it. Look at it. Look, look at the thing for its self-understanding. Look at it for the effect that it has. And then discern what is useful in your experience as you walk with the Lord. And you do that under the authority of Scripture as the Scripture has, has been understood by the fathers. And as the fathers go, yes, Chrysostom was a cessationist, and he lamented it. And while he's lamenting the, the more extraordinary gifts, the man is a prophet who, the, who thunder rolls through the city while he's giving out his prophetic oracles. 
Augustine. Yes, Augustine was something of a cessationist until the end of his life. The last five or six years, he's very much a continuationist, saying go to the shrines of the martyrs to get healed and exercise from demons. There is a, there is a, there is a, a cadence. There is an ebbing and a flowing of the Spirit's ministry through history of miracles and signs and wonders, etc. Anybody who served the Lord for decades knows that you have those, those kinds of things in your own life based upon whatever those charisms are. But all of that stuff's happening, right? That ebbing and that flowing, not so that we redefine doctrine, not so that we create new innovative practices, not so that we come up with a, a different faulty concept of the Reformation, but so that we become a holier people, a, a more faithful people. We become more zealous in our evangelism and our gospel preaching. That's, that's what we get from these movements. That's what we should get. And all the other stuff that gets in the way of that, dismiss it. Yeah, no, that's a good point. The hyperfixation on certain things within them is, not, I think, not the way to go. Like for the traditional Pentecostals, initial, that initial physical evidence, or uh, I guess to, right, to right. unpack that really, I'm going to unpack that really quickly. You can, you can look it up, but the obsession with tongues. Right. You, you know, so and Pentecostals like, know that. Yes. Well, they, the, the educated ones. Yes, they, they do. Um, but then you, you, you look at some of the other things and obviously not the extreme excess, but there's really good things that are happening there and really in line with the, with a lot of the mystics yes. and the same with the, the charismatics to take that liberalism to the side. And it's really interesting because two, two groups with a very similar hermeneutic, but have two different issues. So it, I guess it's clear to see that the, I don't think the issue is the hermeneutic that you, you see how these other factors come in. I think to say that they're the issue would be like saying, well, myst all mystics are bad. I, right. I, I, I don't think you can like there's, there's well, some, you shouldn't. No, I think you need to, to well, read we, up a little bit. You yeah. might see some things where like, eh, I don't know about that or I wouldn't personally do that. But right. you, you do see some incredible things coming out of them. We, we need a more rule, realized pneumatology. Yes. That, that's got to happen. And, and that's part of the danger and the blessing is because in the attempt to have a better pneumatology, a doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we start to come into, come into direct contact with these progressivisms. Progressivisms. It's not one. Progressivisms. That really are so, they can so sour us to the work of the Spirit. I think that's what's happening to the Thessalonians because Paul says to them, uh, not to forbid speaking in tongues and not to uh, forbid prophesying. Why would they be doing that unless they're being burned? And it's pretty clear that they are, ironically, over eschatology. And so anybody who spends time in some of the Pentecostal and charismatic circles, almost all the prophecies and dreams and visions and tongues and interpretations are about Jesus coming back and end of the world events. I mean, it, that hasn't changed, right? So, um, there's a, there's a particular quality to that that we have to be aware of so that we can receive the good and reject the bad and not be carried away by false falsity, but then to legitimately be moved upon by the Spirit. And if we can stay anchored within the sacramental life of the church, we can stay situated, you know, seated at the feet of the fathers, we can experience a, a good bit more here than, we're, than maybe we're used to. And let me, let me refer to the Orthodox for a moment. Because they have an ecclesiology that accounts for this pneumatological work. Now, how often they believe it takes place is a different, different thing. But they're not as rigid in their perceptions on some of this. And that helps us. That can, that can give a grid for some of us. Not all of us. But can give, give a grid for some of us to say, you know what? Maybe the Holy Spirit really is going to do more work and is more active than I think he is. And I can trust him to be at work in every member of the body and that I don't have to be the one who is arbitrarily deciding what's true and what's false. Yeah. I, I look to the analogy that you um, really helped me understanding the idea of fire in a fireplace and that the, the structure uh, and th the structure of the liturgy is truly like a fireplace. And when, listen, when you're, it's cold outside and you need a good fire, listen, a fire is an excellent thing. But when you're, you know, sitting on your couch with a torch in your hand, that's not so good. Right. And I think that analogy really helps to bring light to that and to help understanding that this is a good thing, but there's certain parameters that it has to happen within or else 
it really is a bad thing. A forest fire is a, is a bad thing if right. your house is in the middle right. of the forest. A fire in a fireplace is an analogy from the charismatic movement in the Episcopal Church. Like that, that, that's, you know, that's a good example. It's a good metaphor. Yeah. I, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm thinking about the examples that you have listed in previous occasions in random conversations at the buffet about concerning how the Old Testament talked about like specific worship in specific places and high places versus like preferred worship where yeah. the Lord prescribed worship that the Lord wants <clears throat> and thinking about it in that context like now I know kind of appropriate to now the only way that I can appropriate that best way at this moment is I think that there are a lot of people who are very well-meaning well-intentioned and, and they're seeking the Lord they're trying to in the capacities that they know but they're not aware of all the liturgy. But I guess the simplest thing to say is that every, every tradition, like everyone who is a Christian and you come to terms with doctrine, it has to have a root. It has a root somewhere. Yeah, so, I mean, there, there is that dynamic. There are groups of people who, you know, their ministries are like the Old Testament prophets, the sons of the prophets, where the Spirit of the Lord has raised them up and they will exist for maybe three generations, maybe, maybe 75 years. But he's raised them up because they are a correction to the corruption in the local apostolic succession, if we want to use the parallel imagery. At the same time, there are other ministries that have popped up that have an illicit character to them, meaning they are the zeal of the people generating the ministry, not the work of the Holy Spirit, not within the confines of the churches with the faith once for all delivered. They're not, they're not a cult as far as, as theology goes, but they are something that's more aligned with the high places in Israel's history and with the sons of pro the prophets who become basically the false prophets who prophesy to the kings what they want to hear. All of that stuff principally is still present in the church and outside the church, but next door to it. Yes, that's happening with the charismatic renewal. And the Pentecostal. I mean, movements. look, I, I don't even want to say like it's just those sort of people. I'm like, I'm not trying to. No, because look at the Reformation that. itself. Yeah. And you get all of these groups that are coming out of the Reformation. Once that they start chipping away at the church, they reject the papacy and replace the papacy, not just with an organization or with a king, but with themselves, which is not the objective of many of the magisterial reformers. I mean, uh, kind of a last point with this is one of the things I absolutely love is that especially when people have conversations with us and they hear our perspective on, well, how should the church be around? And we start the, the sources and the people that we're going to and the, the rich uh, history of the church. Sometimes like they're shocked when later on the conversation, like, oh yeah, that I'm, 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 I'm either, uh, I'm, a, I'm Pentecostal. Like uh, that's where, that's my background. Like that's where I come from. Like it's almost shocking to people because they view it as so, Oh um, man, <laughs> like a dichotomy yeah. there. And, and I, they don't have to be. And I, I think it's a shame that in some places that it's happening where the, just the, the form is so bad and not the tradition handed and they happen to be charismatic. So they're using that as an excuse. I, I, that, that is sad, but know that that does not have to be the case. And yeah. that when you see those things lived out and that those bad form, bad liturgy and being charismatic are not synonymous and you can see it being acted out differently or shown differently. I think for a lot of people, that's what they need to see. Yeah. I don't think having a, a charismatic or I'll say having a sense of the eminence of the Holy spirit, because that's really what it's supposed to be. Uh, yes. There's transcendence and the liturgy beautifully captures transcendence, especially when the ceremony has lit has integrity to it. But I don't see anything in scripture or in history that says that I am more filled with the Holy Spirit when I become liturgically innovative. I think, in fact, it's quite the other. Liturgical innovation, we've got to be on guard against that, especially if we're going to lay it at the feet of the Holy Spirit, because he's not the author of confusion. In fact, he's the author of order. That's 1 Corinthians 14. The Spirit's not behind your disorder, that's you. Um... I, I remember I had a, a Baptist pastor, a friend come into my office when I was a Pentecostal pastor and he looked at my books and he said, uh, and, and I noticed he looking over my shoulder, you know, and he started, he kind of chuckled. I said, what, what's going on? 
He said, you know, I don't know too many Pentecostals who actually have books from Yaroslav Pelican that they're reading. I said, well, then you don't know many of us. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm not the only one who reads him. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but I would get quizzical looks when I'd quote St. Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius said in his letters, we don't need to have these false straw man perceptions. What we need to do is focus on what the scripture teaches, obey the gospel, and do everything we can to be the kind of people that walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord so that his grace can be seen by the world outside and we can see the kingdom grow. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I think that I wanted to just <clears throat> button and add here with that is that the Holy Spirit, from what you've always taught us, is Holy Spirit doesn't give us innovations. They give, I forget the proper term for it. It's um, like over time, it doesn't give you innovations. It gives you... It gives us a fresh articulation. Yeah. And the articulation is because of the contemporary challenge. Correct. And one of the ways that you know it's articulation is because it doesn't contradict what was prior. It expands upon what was prior for the sake of a present need. So you could call that development, but the problem with that is the development as the doctrine of development has been so hijacked that that's being cited to justify all kinds of craziness right now. But, but the, we need I mean, to, like the example that I was thinking about in my mind about that was um, Acts when Peter takes the gospel to Cornelius and that whole process, the Holy Spirit reveals to him, hey, you know, don't call anything that I've made clean dirty. And then yeah, well, you know, I met a Methodist versus, pastor, and I yeah. met a couple other pastors who actually use that for the exact purpose. Right, right, purpose. right. But, but what I'm trying to say is, conversely, St. Paul talks about, you know, an angel of light. Like, you know, um, if another angel comes to you with, with a message that is contrary to the gospel, and in an angel of light, <clears throat> it's not exactly the same. No, no. If you go with that reading of Acts 10, as some of the progressive theologians do, they will tell you they believe in the authority of Scripture. They're absolutely committed to it. And they're committed to the ministry of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came and undid everything that Peter and the Jews culturally had been observing when he, when he brought Cornelius and his household into the kingdom. That's exactly how they read the hermit. That's how they read it. And so they're faithful to Scripture because Scripture says that you shouldn't eat anything unclean. And Peter's still abiding by that. So the ascension's already happened, the Spirit's already come, and Peter's still abiding by the, the food laws. And so it takes the Holy Spirit through this uh, trance on the rooftop to, to show Peter that that's not true anymore. And so it's the progressive theologian that comes back and says, I do believe that everything in the Bible is the Word of God. I do believe what the Scripture has taught is, or what the Church has taught is what needed to be taught through history. But now, the Holy Spirit has revealed a new thing. And all of the theologians, not just the guys on the street, but the theologians who will tell you that are faithful in morning prayer, evening prayer. They're good in Greek. They're good in Hebrew. They're good in theology. They're good in history. And they're probably nicer than you are. You know what I mean? I'm not into the nicer than me part. <laughs> and I'm saying that because that's part of the insidiousness of ideologies that are being governed and, and, and influenced by powers that are not from the Holy Spirit. But, but, but guising as the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but how are you going to tell a guy that he's not really being moved upon by the Holy Spirit when you don't have the capacity to rightly articulate the faith that's been once for all delivered? And why it is that the Holy Spirit will not innovate, i.e. contradict what he has revealed. That is the progressive ideology with charismatic gifts associated with it. That's dangerous. It's very dangerous. But that's what's been happening to not just, like you said earlier, it's not just the mainline guys. Rome's falling to that right now. But all my friends that are still in traditional Pentecostal denominations that are my age or older, they've been mad about this for 30 years. But most of the time, they're charismatic and they're charismatic. Yeah. It's the, the personality that comes with it. Right. So we could we could talk about that another time, but you know, I was just I was yeah. just listening how like there's a difference between the two. Like I mean, it, it, when I was thinking about that, when that happened, and, and I know from that story that you told me about that ministry you met with, and how he said, "Okay, this is new work of the Holy Spirit to do this." But what I was saying was, obviously, there's a difference between 
the Lord doing that to perfect and what he said he would versus on the other hand, presenting a whole nother thing out there, a whole nother Holy Spirit, a whole nother gospel like that St. Paul was talking about. Can't perfectly marry those in unison in my yeah, conversation but th- here. But that, that's the thing. And how are you going to articulate that to somebody who's more aware than you are? And that's the call to all of us is to be the best um, theologians, if you will, the best students of scripture in the church children of the church, you know, sons and daughters of the church, as much as we can be, so that we can articulate this stuff well. And when it becomes confrontational, we still retain godliness and sanctity in our communication. That's very important. Amen. The more you disagree with somebody, the more civil you should be in your discourse. I say amen because I'm kind of, you know, this is Lent, you know, and I've been looking in the mirror a lot lately. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I know my, you know, I know my faults here. So, uh, yeah. Well, that will do it for us today. Um, before we go, I would like to say if you guys have the opportunity or one, whatever medium you're listening through, if you could please um, like, comment, subscribe, share with a couple friends or siblings or other people who like theology. Frenemies. Yes, definitely frenemies. Um, also, if you have any further questions, comments, or concerns, or feedback, you can leave an email at Daryl, D-A-R-R-Y-L, at ascensionwv.org. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl.